We are getting towards the end of our study in Second Thessalonians. You may be saying, hey, we just started that. Well, it's not a very long book. I think we got today and then another two weeks. Uh, but we find ourselves in Second Thessalonians 2, 13 to 17. Um, and we'll have the words up here on the screen for your ease of reading. Uh, but if you uh, have your Bible with you, I'd welcome you to open it up to that so you could take some notes in there. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, we have some on our grab a Bible table back there. If you want to walk back there, even now you could go back there and just grab something uh, from that table. And uh, if you do that, you're welcome to keep that Bible. Uh, if you don't have one, uh, not just use it today, but make that your own. Uh, we would love for that to be a gift from us to you. So again, welcome. As we've been going through this letter, it's been interesting to see Paul write to the church in Thessalonica. Um, they were some of the first believers in Jesus Christ. Uh, the, 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 the church grew rapidly. Uh, Paul was only with them anywhere from three weeks to about eight, eight or nine weeks. That most people would guess he wasn't there very long. And yet the church found some significant growth. Um, after Paul had basically been run out of town, the church didn't die, which is awesome. Uh, it continued to grow and thrive. And, and there was a lot of great teachers there, a lot of people leading uh, that church body. But then all of a sudden, some false teachings started coming in. And so Paul wrote some letters. And that's what we're going through right now. We've gone through First Thessalonians. Now we find ourselves in Second Thessalonians. So if you don't know me, um, I am the father of four kids. Uh, I have uh, a, a son who is a junior, actually going into his senior year at the Air Force Academy. Uh, I have another son who uh, is here as a sophomore in college over at Pierce College, uh, working towards a degree in zoology. And then this year, my daughter graduated from Stolcombe High School. And so I got her heading off to PLU, and then I'll have one more. who He's just going to be a sophomore next year. So I got a few years. Uh, but one of the things we were talking about this week uh, as, as a pastoral staff, as we were writing this sermon, uh, Kevin and Drew are both preaching down in Lacey. And so we were talking about the idea um, of sending our kids out into this world. Uh, Kevin, his oldest son, Mason, just graduated, and, and he's going to be heading off to college here shortly, and it's his first. So I was sitting on the other side of the table kind of feeling a little good about myself in that this is my third, I've got this all down, you know, it's this old hat for me, that sort of a thing. But, but to hear Kevin talk about his his firstborn or the first fruits, right? Uh, which is what Paul will call these believers, but his firstborn going out into the world and his desire for Mason is that he will bear fruit. And, and if you're familiar with the gospel of John, um, you know, that's a theme in there, bearing fruit. The idea that we don't just become Christians and then just kind of like stay and move forward, kind of a status quo and just kind of just, you know, coast. We are called to do some incredible things by the power of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. And, and that excites me. It, it excites uh, a lot of you, which I think is what brings us together as a grace works. We love to get out and do things. Um, and so for Kevin this week, as he was talking about Mason and, and we were praying for Mason and the idea of Mason going off to school and it being his firstborn, it, there was just an excitement that I saw in Kevin. And really, I think that's the excitement that the Apostle Paul has for these believers. And so even though in these two letters there's been some correction of, of false 
doctrine, there still is an excitement uh, about this church and, and how quickly they accepted Jesus Christ and the, and the story, the gospel story uh, and salvation, God coming to earth to save them. And, and, and so it was really cool to have these conversations and talking about our children as our fruits or our first fruits that bear fruit. Get out into the community, whatever it is that they're doing, and, and really be the hands and feet of Jesus, which is, again, what we love to do here at the Grace Works. And so the, the kind of the big idea today, I hope what you see here uh, through Paul's writings, first fruits that bear fruit. Um, and, and we want to be those kinds of Christians, fruit-bearing Christians. And so today, at the end of the service, I hope that you ask yourselves, what kind of fruit am I producing? Is there a way for me to produce more fruit? Uh, Am I doing, you know, well in this area that I could come alongside people and help them bear fruit? So those are some of the ideas maybe to keep in the back of your mind today as we go through this passage. Let's be first fruits that bear fruit. We'll start reading in uh, chapter 2, verse 13. We're just going 13 through 17, uh, so about five verses today. uh, And we'll start here in verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Now, we're going to stop there because this verse has a ton of good stuff in it. Paul starts out by saying, but we ought always give thanks to God for you. Paul is writing on behalf of uh, the original missionary trip was Paul and and Timothy and Sylvanius. Uh, And so again, as he's writing, he's writing from a group of church leaders who are not present Uh, presently in Thessalonica. And so when he says, but we ought always give thanks for you, he's saying, um, I've talked about this before in chapter one. If you were with us, you remember back in chapter one, he says, I all, uh, we ought to always give thanks for you because we know what you're doing. Right. And, And so Paul has this divine compulsion to be thankful for these believers. He states again uh, th- that idea, the, the fact that their position with God and the evidence of their faith in God practically force Paul to this place of gratitude where he can't not thank God for them. He goes before the throne of grace and he thanks God for these people. He has to give thanks. Like I said, we saw that in in verse 3 of chapter 1. The only difference here is Paul goes a little bit further. And you see in the next phrase, it says, brothers beloved by the Lord. He adds that to uh, that idea that we ought to be praying for you. So he's confirming in their mind, brothers, sisters, you are loved. You were chosen. You are God's firstborn. You are the first fruits. You need to be bearing fruit. But you are beloved of the Lord. And he gets to that reason for this gratitude. Why is Paul saying those things? It says, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. And to be chosen by God is no small thing. It should give us tremendous joy and encouragement in our lives to know those things, uh, to know that we were chosen by God. It should also give us great security 
uh, because God chooses whatever God chooses he's going to get and he's not going to lose. And over the last couple of weeks, there were some, uh, there were some thoughts going around in Thessalonica about the end times. Have we already missed God coming back? Has he already sent Jesus back? And that was one of the fears that they had as a church. And so, and so Paul has already kind of talked about those things, but now here to encourage them and, and firm that up in their mind, he's saying, you were chosen by God. Know that. Find joy in that. Be encouraged by that. It's not up to me to save myself. It wasn't up to those believers, those women and men in Thessalonica to save themselves. And it's not up to you and I to keep ourselves saved. If we placed our faith in Jesus Christ, God is faithful to keep us. So God chooses us and he keeps us in our salvation. It's secure in him. And this is in direct contrast to the people that he had just referred to earlier in chapter two. So if you were here with us last week, we talked about these people who were in such rebellion and, and, and hatred towards God. They were flaunting their sin. And it says that God gave the wicked over, right, to that great delusion. But he chose this church in Thessalonians. They were chosen by God as the first fruits. And the first fruits of the crop were just that, the first, the best, right? And and I was thinking about when strawberries finally come back into season and I can get local strawberries. Now, I don't know if it's just in my mind, but I think they taste better. I don't know if any of you guys agree with me, but when I see, you know, the little roadside stands popping up, it's hard for me not to pull over and buy strawberries or raspberries or blueberries, whatever it is just that, that's here. And the first time that they're up, those roadside stands, I want to just get them because they're sweet. They're the best. I know I'm going to remember that. Even though I'll eat them all summer long and the frozen ones through the winter, these are the best. First fruits, the first things. We've also, as, as Christians, I think we've tried to tie that in, even though talking about money is uncomfortable, we've tried to tie that into our giving also. That, that as believers, we see throughout scripture, really from the beginning all the way through the end, that we're called to support the local church, the work that's going on in the church. And so we sometimes refer to that giving as uh, giving of the first fruits, in other words, don't take care of everything that you need to do all month long. And if, if on the 29th or the 30th, you got a little bit extra in your account, you write a check to the local church. No, that God has called you with wisdom to give and support a local church body. Whether that's ours or another one, that, that doesn't matter. If there's a church body that's moving forward and, 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 and pushing the gospel and doing things in the community and you, you find yourself involved in them, you are called by God to give and to support that. But God wants our best. He doesn't want our leftovers. And so that's why we talk about it being first fruits. Here, though, Paul is encouraging the Thessalonians in light of the eschatology, that lesson that we just had about the end times earlier in chapter two, that that lesson that he just gave them, that the the lost were perishing, but they were not. 
And that was important for them to remember because they were really thrown off by this false teaching about the day of the Lord. If you miss that sermon, you can look it up online. Uh, Not that it's that great or anything. It was not a life-changing message, but it's some good information. Or just read the first part of chapter two and know that Paul was very concerned about the church in Thessalonica. They were chosen by God to be among the the first gospel believers in Thessalonica, but really in the world. And if they were the first, that means that there was more to come. So I love that word because first fruits implies that there are going to be more. There are going to be more believers. And that is great because we remember from the previous weeks that we are living in a time where we're in the midst of the spirit of the Antichrist. We believe the Antichrist obviously has not come yet, but, but that spirit of the Antichrist is ruling the world. Right? And it's dark and it's depraved and it's contrary to scripture. And, and yet God wants us to be encouraged that you are first fruits. You are called to bear fruit and that you don't have to go the way of the world. God is still calling people away from the lies of this world and towards the truth of the gospel. Do you guys believe that? Is that something you believe, that the gospel still changes lives? Because that's what Paul is convincing this church here in Thessalonica. He's calling people out of darkness and into light. He's calling people away from judgment to a peace and a glory that can only be found in a relationship with him. Talk about hope for the future. When I talk to people, I love people who want to tell me all about what they're doing now and where they're going, right? Like, hey, this is my, my two-year plan, my five-year plan. This is what I'm doing right now, but this is my goal. This is the, the promotion I'm going for. And again, not that we find our self-worth in that, but I love people that talk about what they're doing. And I really love it when I start talking to people and they start talking about retirement and how they're looking forward to traveling with their spouse and how they want to invest in their grandkids' lives. And I mean, that stuff gets me excited. So it's not just about a title or a new job or whatever. Not that those things are wrong. But what is moving you forward, that hope for the future? We get to be a part of other people's salvation and their salvation experience. A lot of us as parents have had the joy uh, of bringing that, that information, that knowledge, helping them understand and leading our own children to the Lord. That's a blessing, But we need to be doing that with our sisters and our brothers and our family members. And those sometimes are the hardest. Our coworkers, our neighbors. I still remember I was 31 and and, and I was working for Costco Wholesale. And I'd been sharing and invested in this young man's life for a couple of years. He's still one of my dear friends to this day. And when I finally just felt Holy Spirit prompt me, ask him if he wants to believe this, if, he, if he's believing it already in his heart, if he wants to make that decision. And I'm like, why would I, why would I not? But I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do here. And, and then I asked, and, and he said yes. And I had the joy of praying with a friend of mine who, who placed his faith in Jesus Christ for the first time. And it wasn't easy but it was incredibly, uh, it was uh, an opportunity that had incredible blessing, not only for him, but also for me. And it changed my life. 
It it, it knocked me in the head and moved me in a different direction, even through the rest of my years at Costco before I retired from there and became a pastor. That was my goal, was to share the good news of Jesus Christ, to see people believe for the first time, or to encourage people who may, uh, may be frustrated in their faith to help them move along the way. And that's what God is calling us to do. God chose us for what? To be saved. You and I, just like the Thessalonians, are are saved from God's wrath. Again, in direct contrast to all that was just taught about the wicked who love evil, who refuse the truth, right? That's what what he was talking about over the last few verses before these. So this, this is all in context. We study small sections. Like I said, today we're only doing these five verses. There were no chapters and verses in that day. So when that letter came, they read the whole thing, and they may have read it a second time, and then even a third time, and then they started breaking it down. What does Paul mean? What is he trying to say to us? And so even though I believe in the way that we're teaching this, starting in verse 1, working our way all the way through the book, taking our times, sometimes we lose sight of what we talked about four weeks ago, and we got to make sure we're bringing it all into context, Right, And we need to read it fully, reread it, and study it. He reminds them how they were saved, though, through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. First of all, note that order. Uh, I don't think this was accidental. I think Paul wrote this very intentionally. In salvation, there are two truths. Truths that can feel like they're at tension with each other. But, but to God, they both exist. One is the calling of God. The other is the human responsibility to respond with belief. If God chooses, right, earlier in in chapter 2, verse 13, um, he, he chose us, right? We saw that. God chose us. Where is the human responsibility? Salvation seems to be through God's divine election. God chose you. He's picking you. He's saving you. But if the believer must believe in truth here in chapter 2 verse 14 isn't that human responsibility now salvation seems to require faith on my part I have to make that decision and believe that so how can these both be true well let, let me just say this they are we see it here in in second Thessalonians but we see it throughout scripture they're both true I don't think that Paul puts them in this order on accident, though. He wants to point these believers towards sanctification by the Spirit as being the most important part, and then our belief in the truth. This is how we're saved. Uh, and, and sometimes we don't break it down or we don't, we don't nail it down to just these specifics. We, we talk about coming to know the Lord and, and, and placing our faith in him. Uh, and yet we see here and throughout other places in scripture, God talking about choosing us. God has chosen you to be a child of his. And, and so we need to give God the glory for the work in salvation. It also frees us up to share the gospel. I remember when I was, when I was sharing the gospel with Arlen, I didn't have to convince him of anything because the Holy Spirit was working. So even though you feel like you might be stammering or stammering and stuttering over the words and, and not really sure what to say next, know that the Holy Spirit is doing his part. He is calling him or her unto himself. And you are helping that person 
put into the words what's already going on in their hearts. That's why when we pray at the end of the service every once in a while, if we feel the, the, the Lord leading us to do that, I will say things like, if you've already made this decision today, I can help you put it into words so that you can look back on a specific prayer or a specific time, but you've already come to a place where you believe. God is working in you. He's, he's changing who you are, and, and he's bringing you to that belief the faith in God. So, so before we move on, though, there's a couple really cool things just to note quickly. Sanctification, this work attributed to the Holy Spirit is monumental and multifaceted. To be sanctified means to be made holy, to be set apart. So when it talks about the Holy Spirit is sanctifying you, he is taking you out of this world and he is placing you in his camp or what we like to call his family. You are a child of God because the Holy Spirit loves you and he chose you. And now he is going to sanctify, set apart, make holy you. There are three aspects of your sanctification. If you're taking notes, I am going to be going kind of quick, uh, or you can pop back onto the, uh, the web and, and watch this to get this back if you want to do more studying on this. But the, the three aspects of sanctification are already, ongoing, and not yet. Okay, already, you are right now holy in God's eyes because of Jesus. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, whether it was when you were a kid or last week or even this morning, if you've believed for the first time, you have now been set apart. You are holy, you are sanctified. If you were to take your last breath today, you will awake in heaven. I believe that. There's no work that needs to be done by you. God does all the work. Amen. That is beautiful. That's the already. But then there's ongoing sanctification. We see this in scripture. You are being made holy more and more each day as you yield to God and his will. So it's not those works or you becoming better that save you. No, 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 no. That's already done. That's the already. But the ongoing is what we talk about here at the Graceworks, becoming a little bit more like Jesus Christ. Each day, I want to be a little bit more like Jesus. Now, there are going to be days that I'm going to trip and I'm going to fall flat on my face and I'm going to mess up. I'm going to yell at my kids. I'm going to get angry with my wife. I'm going to, you know, do whatever it might be. I'm going to sin, Right? And that's a couple steps back, but God wants us to move forward, okay? And we see that. God wants us to become more like him in this life. We're not supposed to just place our faith in God and say, it's an already done thing. I'm sanctified. I'm set apart. When I die, I will be in heaven. All those are all truths. God has called you to something more. Stop coasting. It's an ongoing process. So we have the already, we have the ongoing, and then we have the not yet part of sanctification, you will be made holy forever when you die or Jesus returns no more sin. That is the most exciting to me. I don't know. They're all exciting because the already is pretty incredible too. But can you imagine this, right? The not yet, right? You are going to be made holy. If, if today's my last day and I take my last breath today, when I open up my eyes in heaven and I take my first breath of heavenly air, I will no longer sin. That'll be incredible, right? God is going to sanctify us permanently. Now, I could teach a three-week course on this, the already, the ongoing, and the not yet. I could teach a six-month 
course on these three things, right? We can't get into all of these today, but they're all right here. And that is done, that is the work that is done by God. It's been called your sanctification positionally, the already, right? Progressively, as you continue to move forward and perfectly when you get to heaven, you will be made perfect. Positionally, progressively, and perfectly. Here, Paul seems to be referring to the first as he's talking about the Thessalonian salvation, past tense. They stand right before the Lord. That's what Paul is talking about here. Paul describes the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in your salvation. Genesis describes the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in creation. And now now Paul is saying, God is making you new. You are the new creation. God the Father chose you. The, The Lord Jesus Christ loved you through the work on the cross. And the Holy Spirit sanctified you. God the Father chose you, the Holy Spirit loved you, or uh, Lord Jesus loved you all the way to the cross, and the Holy Spirit sanctified you. That is beautiful. Our position before God should give us great security. Your, your social position, or your wealth, or your family, or, or your job, or your possessions are not your security. Hear that, brothers and sisters. Now, it doesn't mean don't go out and work hard and provide for your family. That's not what I'm saying. But that's not where your security comes from. If you're putting your security in things or in humans, you're going to be shaken. Oh, that sounds familiar. Paul was just talking about that, right? They were being shaken in their mind, right? Because they were believing false teachings. We don't want to be shaken. Our security needs to be in God alone. Those things, those people, they will fail you. Our position, our identity as daughters and sons of God comes from God. That's so important. It's not of you. You don't have to reach a certain level or status or, or holiness or I haven't sinned for three days so now I can be a Christian or whatever it might be. That those aren't what saved you. The position, the identity, they come from God. So that when times of trouble come in this life, like it had for the Thessalonians, we can grasp onto the truth that security comes through God our Father. That's Paul's main point. Remember how troubled they were back in chapter 2 earlier last week. They were troubled in mind, right? They were in a dark place as a church. And Paul's saying, no, your security is in God. Now he moves from the how we're saved to the what we are saved to. Remember the story about my my buddy Kevin's son, Mason, right? First fruit, and he wants him to bear fruit. My kids, right? They're my children, and I want them to bear fruit. And that's where Paul goes next. What are we saved to? Picking up in verse 14. To this he called you through the gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by spoken word or by letter. First, Paul presented the Thessalonians' unbelieving opponents as destined to perish, right? But here he's saying you have been called through the gospel so that you may obtain 
the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So now he's encouraging the believers that they were chosen by God to be saved. And and, and in verse verse 14 here, he reminds them uh, of both the means and the final destiny of their calling. That means uh, of salvation, the means of salvation was through the gospel. It says here, through our gospel, the message that they had proclaimed to them. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, picking up in verse four, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, we were walking around as dead women and men, right? Jesus loved us and he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This message hasn't changed. The, the message Paul's given to the church in Thessalonica is the same one that he was given to the church in Ephesus, right? And later in verse 8, he picks up uh, of Ephesians 4, if you're taking notes, verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no man can boast. This is the gospel. This is the good news that God loved us even when we were still dead in our trespass. Even when we were living a life of sin and in full rebellion, he came to us. He made us alive together with Christ by his grace. And Paul wants the churches to understand that. That by faith, we can enter into the family of God. This is the most amazing gift ever given, right? I I think I'm a pretty good gift giver. I've given some amazing gifts. Nothing even comes close to this gift. Some of you have given me incredible gifts, and I thank you for them. But none of those stand even close to this gift that God wants to give to you. The gift through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It affects their final destiny. And it says there, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is, it's a a shocking truth, really. The glory of God is no small subject. It was the glory of God that Moses uh, desired to see in Exodus. Remember, he went before God and said, show me your glory. God says, if you saw my glory, you'd be dead, right? So, so you turn around and I'm going to veil myself and you're just going to see a touch of it. And Moses walked around glowing. I don't remember exactly for how long, but he literally was glowing because the back of him was somehow uh, touched by a part of God's glory. It was the glory of Yahweh that filled the tabernacle and the temple uh, in, in the way that God came down to earth to his people and, and, the, and, and it was his design for that. He lived, he stayed in the tabernacle and the temple. So he was with his people. In fact, in Isaiah, Yahweh says that he will not share his glory with any, referring especially to the false gods. In other words, I have my glory, it is mine, right? But the glory of, of God is also the glory of Christ, for they are one, And we get to share in a measure of God's glory for all eternity. So you understand that? Here on this earth, we, these bodies could not handle God's glory. 
and yet for eternity we will spend uh, it with our Savior, Jesus Christ, with God the Father, with the Holy Spirit, all glory, so that we could obtain that in salvation. Now, to be sure, we will not be equal with God, but the fact that God wants to share his glory with us forever is no small thing. And and this eventually will be for all who have been chosen by God, saved, sanctified, right, By, by the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Now, Paul writes this whole section here with a very pastoral heart. He loves the church, and that's why he continues to write these letters and to want to be there, and he wants to lead and teach and allow them to grow. His dear children that had been quickly shaken in mind and alarmed by the false teaching. He's like, no, no, I want you to have the security that should come from God. He felt it was very important for them to hear this. And armed with an understanding of their future security, the Thessalonian believers had no reason to lose heart over the claims of the false teachers. It doesn't matter what anybody comes and tells you about God if you know the truth and you can hold that secure, you know, securely in your heart, if you believe it and you understand it, You will not be shaken like this church was. Verse 15, so then brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that were taught by us, either by our spoken word or or by letter. The so then is, it's noteworthy. He's summing up the teaching here and he does it with two uh, exhortations. So then refers to the subject just written. So you can observe an inclusio. Notice that the, the words echo his introductory words. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you brothers not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by spirit or by spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us to affect that the the day of the Lord has come. That was chapter two, verses one and two, right? He starts out that way, and now he's concluding it. The eventual, uh, uh, the destruction of the wicked he talks about earlier in this chapter, now he's talking about the eternity for the believer, the eternal glory that they will experience. In light of the uncertainty of today, the spirit of the Antichrist already at work in the world, in light of the uncertainty of tomorrow, the rebellion and the actual Antichrist to come, and he will come in power. We talked about that last week. Despite these things, your foundation is your identity in Christ and your eventual destiny, right, in heaven. So Paul's saying it doesn't matter what's going on around you or what's going to come. That shouldn't shake you. Why? Because you are a son or daughter of the the Most High God, and you are going to spend eternity in heaven. Those things we can know. Stand firm. Don't be shaken. Don't be troubled. Know who you are. Know who you are. Take comfort in that. I think we as parents in some way are called to to express these same thoughts and feelings to our kids, right? Give them a place where they can fail and come to us knowing that there are things that they 
can know for sure we will not disown you. We will always love you. If you make mistakes, we're going to help you make it right. We're going to help you through it, right? That's what we need to do as parents. We need to bring them along, keep them safe in the security of the truths about being a miller, right? You, you can know these things. The four, my four children can bank on these certain things no matter what they do. These truths will not change. There may be consequence, there may be hurt, there may be pain, there may be growth, but it doesn't change who they are, right? And, and Paul's saying that here. You are a daughter, you are a son of the most high God, and no matter what, that won't change, and you will spend eternity in heaven. Now, this contrast is meant to give us comfort. What Paul has talked about here is meant to give the church comfort. Check out some of the contrast between the lost and the saved, right? The perishing and the saved. The perishing refuse to love truth, and yet the saved believe, right? Their faith is in the truth. The, the perishing find pleasure in unrighteousness, but the saved are sanctified. Remember, we are made holy. The perishing, uh, the, the activity of Satan, the evil, the rebellion, the sin that they go after is, is what characterizes them. And yet for the saved, it's those who are desiring to be more like Jesus Christ, the Father, the Spirit. The perishing will have condemnation and the saved will have glorification. Paul lays all these things out there to comfort his people. Remember back in 1 Thessalonians, right? Right into the same church. Multiple times we saw encourage one another with these words. Paul loved the church and he wanted them to take a firm stand in their faith in God, their identity right? Stand firm. You know these things, these traditions that were taught by us, right? They were taught by us. And the beauty of this is if you look into the gospels, if you look into the other letters, you look into the old Testament, it's confirmed by the same truths being taught. We are blessed. The Bible is a blessing to us because we see consistent truth. And I think that, that in the United States, there's a, a biblical or theological illiteracy out there. And, and, and I want you guys to understand what God is saying and why he's saying it. And not just take my word for it, but dig in on your own and study and, and confirm the things that are being taught or, or come up with your ideas and, 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 and press back and let's have some, some tension there. But in a lot of churches, uh, and again, I don't want to come too hard on them, they just simply don't teach the Bible anymore. And I think we need to be a people who demand more. We need to go to church so that we can learn what's in the Bible so that we can become more like Jesus Christ. It's not a, a social club. And don't get me wrong, the Grace Works loves to have fun. We have donuts and chocolate milk before the service. We have food after the service. We get together to serve. We have community groups, but we're not a social club to make you feel better. That's not why we meet. It must, the church, 
not just the grace works, but all churches, they need to be more focused on the one thing, the revealed words of God. We have been given God's word. We need to study it. We need to preach it. We need to teach it straight out of the Bible. Teaching God's word is where, where we as pastors spend a significant amount of our time. But we need to encourage you to do the same on your own. These words of life are not just given to pastors, but they're given to all. Let's value biblical knowledge. Let's value scholarship. Paul says you were taught by us, spoken word, letters. You know these things. You have the Old Testament, or at least they had parts of it. Value that. Don't be satisfied with ignorance. It will ground us. As, as Paul says, the, the face of, of opposition and the anxiety of life can be put at ease because of the truths of the Scripture. Let's pick up these last two verses here. Now, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Not to leave, uh, not one, I should say, to leave his friends with an imperative, right, of the, of the kind that he offered in verse 15, uh, as his final word on the matter, Paul immediately turns to an offer of prayer on their behalf. We've seen this twice already in this book. We saw it in 1 Thessalonians. I want to pray for you. I love you, right? He, he just flows into prayer. We have a lot to learn from him in this. Sometimes I, I feel like my prayers have to be so formal. They got to start a certain way and, and end a certain way. I, I, I want to get to the place where my prayer life is a conversation with God. Again, not flippantly. I want to remember this is the God of creation, the God of this world. But I want it to be a constant conversation that really has no beginning and no end. Where I can pray for you, where I can pray for our community, where I can pray for those who are sick, where I can ask God for things where I can pray to grow and to learn. Now, th this should be our goal. A prayer life that is a conversation with God. Paul's prayer, it's significant though in content. He, he begins with an attitude of gratitude, right? I thank God for you, right? Who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, he knows who he's talking to, and he knows what he's talking about. It is indeed the love of God which motivates him to shower his grace down on helpless humans, right? God loves us, and he showers down the grace and the mercy that we don't deserve. And it's in that relationship with God that, that we were really made for, that we, we find this eternal comfort and good hope. The God uh, that, that, that changed the course of their lives would comfort their hearts and establish them in every good work and word. 
First, remember our hearts need the comfort. Paul's talked about that a couple different times. And in, in, in 1 Thessalonians, he's encouraged them to encourage one another, right? Comfort those. For those of you who are nervous or shaken in mind about the end times, let me comfort you. For those of you that don't quite understand what the end times will look like or understand what death uh, truly is, let me comfort you with these words. And those words are words that he got from God. He wants to give hope. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, that was a chapter I was able to use with my own kids. Uh, Gwen's Dad passed away uh, right at the end of our vacation, and, and, and my youngest son especially, uh, Cole, who's only 15, had not experienced the death of someone real close to him. And so I pulled out the Bible, and I opened it up to 1 Thessalonians 4, and I knew that because we had just preached on it a few weeks earlier. And I said, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. Right? Those are Paul's words, but an understanding that comes from God that because Larry had a relationship with God, Larry had placed his faith in Jesus Christ, that he is now in heaven for eternity. And that I could comfort Cole with those words. Your grandfather, yes, is no longer here, but he is in heaven. And that's a truth that we can bank on, and we can take comfort in that. Paul acknowledged to him, just like I acknowledged to Cole, that we do grieve. It's not that we are not supposed to grieve. So we told stories, the, the ones that made us laugh, and then the ones that made us cry. But we had good grief. I think that's the way Derek preached it, right? He was preaching on this one. It, it was like Charlie Brown, good grief, right? No, this is a good kind of grief. We're supposed to grieve, but we have hope. We have hope. And so that changes things. Our hearts do hurt sometimes. Grief over loss. Grief uh, over the choices of others. Grief over our own decisions that we have now made and have to live with the consequences. Grief over the values of this world around us. And we need comfort. God comforts us through the comforter, Holy Spirit. Secondly, uh, we also need to have our hearts be established, right? We need to get into the word of God. We need to believe it. We need to trust it. We, we must not be blown and tossed by the wind. Remember in James, when we studied through that, that's the way he described it. Don't be as a, a ship who's being blown and tossed at sea. No, you can anchor to the truths of God. You can anchor to Jesus Christ, we can be established there, and it should appear in good works and in our good words. Now, our good works don't save us. We've talked about that even today, and we continue to talk about that. We are saved by God's grace and our faith. Things should be different in the way that we live, the trajectory of our lives because of those truths. We truly are kingdom ambassadors. What do your words say about your identity? Colossians 4, 5, and 6 says, Walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Make the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. 
Unfortunately, the words of most people today are bitter, not salty, not savory. If you don't believe me, flip open your Facebook page, right? And you'll see it. Doesn't take long. In our society, we're constantly outraged, indignant, offended, right? But we as Christians are called to be different. It doesn't mean that, that there won't be times for us to stand up for God's truth. But we need to be different than the world. There should be saltiness in our words that are attractive but not offensive. Now, we know the gospel will offend those who do not believe, but we don't need to be offensive for offensiveness' sake. Do your words bring life? Do they speak life wherever you go, whatever you do, with anyone you speak to? One of the things I've encouraged my kids to do, bring life to those you interact with through the words that you say. And I think that's a goal that we can all have. Paul prays that our every good word would establish our hearts. This should challenge each one of us in both our conduct, how we pray for each other, how we pray for ourselves. Let's both model these prayer requests and make them our prayer requests. Paul wanted them to pray in a certain way, to believe in a certain way, to live in a certain way. And I think that these things are applicable to us today.